whatever impossible thing you're facing, you only need to face it one day, hour, or minute at a time. Ultimately, you don't have to face anything for more than one breath at a time. It's possible to string together a meaningful life this way. And it's safe to allow yourself to feel your grief. Your grief is a measure of how deeply you love. Through it you will find your strength and your reason to continue living. I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title, and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives. On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hi, and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Women Today. I hope you have been enjoying and feeling deeply impacted in all the best ways by the stories that are being told and the conversations being had this month in our theme around trauma and triumph. I know for me personally, these themes never get old, and every time I hear a woman talk about and claim her own journey and experience, I am moved, I'm impacted, and it gives me a lot of food for thought and also fuel for my own journey on my personal path. So today I'm introducing someone who is incredibly special, and my connection with her is one that I am profoundly grateful, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. A few months ago, a mutual friend, Meryl Rothis, who was actually interviewed earlier on this podcast, talking about her profound journey of multiple baby losses and her grief warriorship. If you haven't heard that episode, I highly recommend it, and I would go check it out. And Meryl's been an incredible supporter of this podcast, and she connected me with Terry Dillian. And Terry Dillian is someone I did not know personally but through the process of co-creating this conversation and interview, had the privilege to get to know just a little bit. And Terry Dillian is someone who has profoundly impacted the lives of so many people here in our local community, as well as beyond the local community. And her story is one of a terminal diagnosis. It's a story of her warriorship as well. It's a story of what we do when the unthinkable happens and how we work with our inner mind and our inner somatic experience, even when we are facing the most difficult, incomprehensible experiences in life. And in this case for Terry, it was the diagnosis. 
So a little bit about Terry. Terry Dillian retired from her career as a psychotherapist, licensed addictions counselor, clinical supervisor, and group process teacher in 2016. She now excavates the humbling lessons of motor neuron disease, ALS, through writing, research, and artful embodiment. Her book, No Pressure, No Diamonds, Mining for Gifts and Illness and Loss, was published in November 2020. Now, for any of you who know much about ALS, also called Lou Gehrig's disease, it is a degenerative disease. And when you get this diagnosis, it is absolutely terminal. And it's just a matter of knowing, well, not knowing really how much longer one has to live. And over the course of time, you slowly, but gradually, well, it depends on the case, lose more and more motor functioning and at this point, Terry uses a software to be able to type with her eyes to communicate, whether that's through emails or messages. She actually wrote her entire book using her eyeballs, which if any of us can imagine being in that situation, it's an incredibly profound commitment and warriorship that she demonstrated to do that. Her book, No Pressure, No Diamonds, Mining for Gifts and Illness and Loss, impacted me so deeply. I read the entire thing, every single word in preparation for this interview with her because I knew it was such a profound opportunity. And if you or anyone in your life is a deep sea diver, curious about life and death issues, illness, how one faces and grapples with the unanswerable existential questions about life, I could not recommend this book more. Also, if you have anyone in your life, you or someone else who's dealt with a diagnosis of any sort or an illness or the loss of a loved one through cancer or any other sort of more gradual decline that's very painful to be with and to witness, I also recommend this book. I was crying, I was laughing, I was profoundly touched by every story, every window that Terry let the reader into, into her world. And I was really blown away by everything she got into this book. And so this interview is unlike any I've ever done because Terry took the time, her precious time, to respond to my questions and she accepted the invitation to be interviewed. And so you're going to hear me asking the questions in my voice, and then you're going to hear Terry's voice communicated through this process I was describing with her incredible technology, where she sat and she typed responses with her eyes, and a software program recorded the sound of an automated voice reading the responses to the questions. So it's highly unusual if you're getting to listen to this interview, you are extremely privileged and this is a profound opportunity. So I hope you can listen to it in a space of receptivity and recognition that for any of us who get to hear the wisdom from a woman who has faced ALS, it's a profound opportunity and extremely enlightening. So thank you, Terry, from the bottom of my heart for saying yes to this process and being in the back and forth with me. And I want you to know if you're listening to this, that I 
have been incredibly touched by getting to know you even in this peripheral way through this process and your life has been continues to be and forevermore will be an incredible gift to all those who come in contact with you please enjoy this interview and i will look forward to connecting soon Terry, welcome to Women Today. I'm incredibly grateful to have you here on the podcast. And as you know, I fell deeply in love with your book for so many reasons. But one reason in particular is that you really do an incredible job at taking us deep into the privacy of your mind and revealing the full range of everything that can go on for us as humans, the anger, the grief, the annoyances, the judgments, the analysis, the fear, the humor, the grace. I mean, you really hit it all. And I'm wondering if you can share with us what are the things that have been most supportive or useful to you in terms of being able to stick with yourself and work with your mind through such a grueling experience? Thank you, Emma, for this compliment. I did strive to be transparent above all else and... I knew I had little left to lose in being honest about my experience, since I no longer have a career to protect or some curated image to uphold. I had largely been set free of the kinds of concerns which cause people to want to hide from public scrutiny. Therefore I felt free to let it all hang out, which I did with very few exceptions. I gather you're asking here about the tools, perspectives, or resources which have been most helpful for staying present which is an important question. First, I should say that time itself has been a valuable ally for me in this harrowing journey. Because my diagnosis is considered 100% fatal, and I've now carried it for four and a half years while most terminal diagnoses have a much shorter shelf life, I've been given a rare opportunity to observe the mental and emotional fallout, and possibilities, inherent in such a predicament and consciously facing my own progressing disability, full-time, over time, makes certain patterns really clear. It's offered me this inescapable intimacy with the knowledge of how precarious my body is, and embodiment in general is. I've been forced to surrender an ability, an independence, and a little strength each day, week, and month since the whole thing began. You can't simply live with a difficult reality for this long without gaining some perspective. To get more specific though, there are some earthy supports that have allowed me to face my reality without shying away from its intensity. These include my own weekly therapy, 12-step meetings, which I return to late in the illness, a mate who is supportive and likes to listen, and friends who do the same, a loving and devoted mother, in-laws and extended family who check in regularly and send along the resources and encouragement they can. I have a pretty awesome tribe. One important thing to acknowledge about these outer supports is how they have made it easier to access my inner resources and strengths. That's how it works, I believe, when we have enough physical, emotional, and relational scaffolding and safety. We have more luxury to turn inward and explore how we can relate to our various life predicaments with an uncommon creativity. Along these lines, and as far as the inner resources go, 
One of the most important for me has been my dogged allegiance to the idea of soul growth. I decided long ago to believe that we can always take whatever happens to us, no matter how difficult, as an opportunity to open more to trust, more to gratitude, more to the discipline of finding what remains beautiful, promising, and workable in our lives. Even though it sure helps to have outer circumstances supporting our senses of hope and faith in redemption and meaning, hope and faith themselves are, by their nature, not dependent on anything other than our own willingness to let them exist in our own hearts. This basic outlook has proven invaluable. Even though I toyed with the possibility of meaninglessness at times in my illness, I never fully surrendered my search for meaning and agency. What an incredible gift, and something I believe we all have. In your book, you write a lot about various relationships in your life and the wide spectrum of how people have either showed up or not showed up for you along your journey. What would you like us to hear about the most effective ways to show up for people dealing with grief, trauma, darkness, terminal illness, or unthinkable loss? Yes. It's such a good question. As you could probably guess from having already read my book, the first thing I'd say is to the question of how to show up is, first show up, at all. You'd think this is really obvious, but it's not uncommon for people who get a terrible diagnosis, or who are otherwise experiencing acute grief, to get ghosted by a certain percentage of friends, family, and colleagues. Some people are made so uncomfortable by another's misfortune that they physically or emotionally disappear at some point in the process. It's understandable, to a point. It's hard to stay present to another's pain, and at points we all feel the urge to step back and collect ourselves before reaching out, leaning in. I think most people know that disappearing completely is a pretty awful thing to do to someone who's struggling, but if we're honest with ourselves, most of us can look back and find times when we chose to stay silent instead of reaching out to acknowledge someone's loss. Sometimes it's hard to know what to say, and we fear saying the wrong thing. Some people fear that acknowledging a loss will make someone hurt even more, because they'll be reminded. But it's important to know, it's not like they are forgetting their reality. They cannot, and therefore we won't injure them with our acknowledgement. To summarize, I'll say, just say something. Remember you don't have to make it all better, fix it somehow, or put things in perspective for the grieving person. Just bring your witnessing presence, and don't underestimate the power of your company. If you want to offer something practical, get clear and specific on what you can offer. Instead of waiting for the person who's hurting to tell you how to help them, which requires a level of assertiveness few of us have even at our strongest moments. Ask them if they would like you to clean out their fridge on Tuesday, or roast a chicken on Thursday, or devote some time to medical research on their behalf. Ask them if they'd like to watch a movie or go for a virtual walk together. The point is to meet them where they are at, and let them know you aren't afraid of their feelings and their needs even though they are hurting. I was deeply impacted as I read about your partnership and marriage with John. What has your relationship taught you about the true nature of love and long-term partnership? John and I are lucky because we are great friends more than anything. We are geeks about getting each other's attention, 
a project which we're both equally invested in. Before I met him, I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't date another man who I didn't feel comfortable being myself around. So when I met John and realized within days I could let it all hang out with him, I knew I had met my match. But beyond a fortunate compatibility, it seems that a commitment to intimacy on the part of both parties is key. This happens one day at a time. And in order to have intimacy, you need enough courage to be vulnerable with each other, which yes, can be terrifying, but is necessary. Otherwise a marriage or partnership feels stale, or even like a hostage situation. And believe me, the potential for it to get even more hostagey when someone in the relationship is paralyzed and needs the care of the other is no joke. When John and I start getting grumbly with each other, upon further inspection we reliably find that in the past few days or week, we haven't really taken the time to share openly where we are both at, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. And when we're not taking the time to connect in these ways, it's easy to let resentments grow, and distortions grow. We create stories about each other which are rarely helpful or grounded in reality. But once we take the time to connect, and especially when we're doing our own work with our own support systems, it feels nourishing to be honest. We have the chance to ask for tweaks in how we're relating and trying to get our needs met. In doing that we can more easily reaffirm we're still on the same team and looking out for each other. In your book, you write powerfully about your inner dialogue and relationship with God, source, or spirit. You share many different moments of insight where you touch into the reality that on a quote-unquote soul level, everything is okay. Where are you today in terms of how you reckon with your personal faith or spiritual belief structures? As you know, I discuss in the book the idea of having an insecure attachment to the divine. Many of us transfer our attachment styles towards our parents onto our conceptions of a higher power, which means it's often a shaky relationship to begin with. But there's nothing like having a personal tragedy to really throw our faith and spirituality into question. It's easy to be trusting in the universe when everything is more or less going our way. But I learned firsthand it's something entirely different when we meet a challenge or loss the nature of which we never could have imagined and struggle to make sense of. So this has been quite the journey for me. Having said that, and despite my falling out with Christian theology, Buddhist practice, and nearly every organized belief structure in between, I've never completely abandoned the idea of the soul, and that we're on this planet to learn and to grow. But I can say that my notion of a higher power is more of a conversation. Trying to find a solid definition for it is very much a work in progress, and I know that the nature of the divine, by necessity, will always carry some degree of mystery. I can say, though, that I tend to feel more comfortable with relating to an energy and intelligence that I think of as feminine, warm, wise, and accepting, all qualities I had to personally define. I connect with this power through writing, contemplation, and through listening to the messages of sanity that come back toward me when I ask for help, or for strength and guidance. And other times I need something more concrete and practical to give structure to my life. At those times, I just define the God of my understanding to be anything in my life that leads me in a good orderly direction.
You do such a powerful job in the book of taking us with you on the journey of trying to understand and make sense of your illness and its causes or origin. I was really impacted specifically by how you explored the physical, genetic, psychological, emotional, and spiritual dimensions of your illness. And I'm wondering with where you are now, what would you like listeners to hear about your thoughts on the process of asking why when something happens or trying to understand when painful or unwanted or horrific things happen to us? Gosh, Emma, I wish I had answers to this. If I'm honest, I still struggle to understand how this disease could happen to anyone, including me. It feels cosmically perverse, even wicked. Yet I think we all want to trust in a larger order, that things make sense somehow in the big big picture. In order to come to peace with my life, I have to have faith that it fits some meaningful design. But here's the important thing to me. I can choose to believe it makes some cosmic sense, somehow, without it being the case that I, quote, deserve it. That's where we get messed up it seems, in thinking in terms of punishment and worthiness as if we did everything right we'd never have misfortune. This is where the idea of karma becomes a weapon we can hurt each other with, and hurt ourselves with. And that's just not how things work. Reality is less transactional and straightforward than that. All we can ever know for sure is that, for whatever reason, an unfathomable number of causes and consequences came together to manifest this exact illness, this exact circumstance. It's not a value judgment on us as egos, or as souls, to have something conventionally considered bad happen. It just is. Along these lines, I know all I can do is create as best I can with the new tools and paints I wake up with each day. I choose my response. And in the moments I'm feeling especially theistic, and need it to have a more personal meaning, I choose to embrace the idea of having been entrusted with an uncommon hardship. Being human isn't for the faint of heart, but when we can relate to our losses as invitations to a greater maturity and humanity in the face of the mess we're all in, we have the opportunity to grow and be of uncommon service to others. In the book, you describe the moment when you make a conscious decision to stop fighting and being hard on the illness and instead choose to surrender. What was this experience like for you and how did you know that it was time for the surrender? What wisdom do you have for our listeners about ways to know how or when it might be time to approach a hardship in our life differently? Well, as you know, after a few years of devoting all my efforts towards trying to heal myself, I hit a personal bottom. I was mentally, emotionally, and physically exhausted and saw nowhere else to go and I simply had no remaining oomph to keep fighting my reality. It suddenly required less energy to acknowledge and accept the pain of my situation, the stark unchanging reality of it, than it did to keep trying to fix it. This hitting bottom concept is used a lot in addiction recovery. It's the idea that before we become willing to radically change a big aspect of our life, we have to have a visceral experience of the powerlessness and unworkability of our current setup. We realize, beyond any doubts, that our attempts to control, manipulate, manage, strong arm, push, whatever, really, really isn't working. It's actually failing spectacularly, 
and we are the ones hurting most through our unwillingness to acknowledge and accept this reality. And in my case I suddenly realized the intense push to quote, heal, was actually quite aggressive. It was not kind. To me, my husband, our savings, our time, or our quality of life. And admitting this to myself meant I was free to choose a different path. But the thing with surrender is that it's actually freeing. Letting go is the first step to a new empowerment. It's the first of the 12 steps, and can usher in a new spirituality and grace if we follow through with our new willingness for a change of heart. And I found this to be true, that my well-being dramatically improved when I finally let go of my need to control my own fate. Surrender to the reality of the illness itself was healing. I knew I needed to put my life into the hands of some other power. And this was an incredible relief. But the thing is, I don't know if I could try to tell anyone else when that moment of surrender should be. It's a highly personal turning point. I reckon the more we stay in contact with our own energy, knowing, and heart, the more likely we are to recognize and accept the need to let go and turn it over. You write a lot about forgiveness, both of the self and of the other. How do we engage the process of forgiveness in a way that gets to the heart of the matter as opposed to just an intellectual concept of something that is supposedly morally good or right? This is really the question for the ages. First off, it's important to recognize that it's not uncommon to have some resistance to the idea of forgiveness especially when we interpret forgiveness to mean absolving someone for actual harms done. Holding people accountable for harmful behavior can actually be a very compassionate act. So we need to differentiate between forgiving someone and condoning their behavior. When we're taking forgiveness as a conceptual exercise, relating to it as if it's something we, quote, should do, because we're trying to be good spiritual people, we're going to have a tough time with it. Forgiveness is not an easy thing to talk ourselves into, especially when we carry significant hurt and resentment about another's behavior. But there comes a point in which we might admit that our resentments, our basic complaints about the past, are interfering with our own well-being. So we may decide that continuing to carry, or even nurse our resentments, has become less effort than it's worth. But to nurture that embodied release of our complaints actually requires a spiritual awakening. We need to view the situation from a different level of awareness, and feel it from the inside out. And we need to cultivate compassion somehow. In my experience, this type of transformation is gradual and must be consciously nurtured day after day. I have to keep my eye towards the truth that only hurt people. And the only thing that helps us grow bigger is having someone willing to see something bigger in us and give us a chance to grow into it. And giving that generosity to others requires an ability to forgive ourselves, to affirm that despite all the ways we've mucked things up, we still carry worth, value, a basic capacity for dignity. As living beings we're still sacred beings, deserving respect for wanting to do good and having the capacity to grow. From there it's not as big a leap to extend that warmth outward. What do you feel most proud of in terms of how you have lived? I like this question about pride, 
especially within the context of a podcast by, for, and about women. It feels like pride is a revolutionary act when, as women, it's so often reinforced that we should be humble about our strengths and accomplishments. This is one reason I know I'm not alone in it being easiest to see what I wish I could change about how I've lived. Where I missed the mark. But I think it's just as important to name and claim what feels positive and powerful about ourselves and the lives we've chosen to create. And it's an important part of any self-inquiry efforts to note progress, accomplishments, and where we have pride in how we've grown. To that end, I am proud that I've survived this long. I know in disability advocacy we're not meant to provide inspiration porn to non-disabled folks for simply showing up and trying to live with dignity despite our challenges. But honestly, personally, I do feel like a warrior for withstanding this progressive illness for nearly five years, especially while managing to retain a sense of humor and a soft heart. I'm proud that through it all, I've pursued the urge to grow. I've made an ongoing practice of seeking honest inquiry with myself, and learning how to course correct when I've lost my way. I've nurtured the urge for wholeness, healing, and integration of whatever within me feels torn or lost. This has required learning how to ask for help from the people and opportunities surrounding me, and learning how to receive it and use it well once it shows up. I'm proud that I've sought to squeeze something redemptive out of an incredibly difficult circumstance. In this way I'm learning how to honor everything I know to be true about empowerment and faith, though in a way where I don't abandon myself or bypass my humanness. The heartfelt search for workability and jewels in impossible situations is a creative and soulful act, and should be appreciated as such. And finally, the fact that I've even managed to create an offering out of my pain, through writing a book with my eyes no less, lends the whole journey special meaning. I gather that in the process I've inspired others to trust themselves more and trust their lives more, and I think that's a beautiful thing, and something to be proud of. How are you preparing both inside yourself and with your loved ones for death? It's natural for anyone, especially when they've had limited exposure to an intimacy with a death and dying process, to have only a vague notion of how to prepare and what to expect. I know I did prior to entering hospice, which is why I took efforts to really walk my readers through it with me. I talked about the beauty and heartbreak of saying goodbyes, explored the practical questions, included the fears of physical pain. I'm glad I did this because it's good to contemplate one's own death long before being faced with its immediacy. This was a gift I wanted to leave for others. Now, though, I'm feeling more private about the process. I'm at the point where my relationship with death needs to be more protected and internal. It changes by the day and by the hour. It is everything at once, so wild and unknowable, so frightening and alluring. It needs room to meander and roam and ultimately resists my articulation. And I will admit that I'm especially protective of trying to discuss how my loved ones are coming to grips with my approaching death. I think partly this is because I know on one level, it's not my business. I can too easily step outside of my own hula hoop of responsibility, and try to make it all okay for them somehow, 
prepare them for every contingency, give them some sort of emotional armor so they never feel any pain. But of course I can't do that. No one can. We have to set each other free, and nowhere more so than in death. I need to trust they will carry it in the best way they can. I also suspect that as I write this, today, the contemplation of others' heartbreak is simply too much for me. Even now I have my limits, and that's okay. But I can say that the whole question of preparing is funny for me right now, because at the moment, I've largely stopped preparing for my death altogether. I want to throw my hands in the air and holler, enough already. Two years on hospice gives you plenty of time to prepare, and I've done so much of the important work on logistics and relationships already to feel ready to make this approaching transition with confidence. I've done my best. I know now it's a question for my higher power when I should go. I get to turn that over, and remember it's really not my business to try to manage the details. So for now, I'm trying to focus on living. I try to find some joy and growth out of every day. I listen to soulful music, and request the most deluxe and yummy foods my caregivers are willing to prepare, that my weak throat can still swallow. I'm practicing being more thoughtful in relationships with my loved ones. Lately I've been trying to apply the acronym of THING to every communication, are my words thoughtful, are they honest, are they intelligent, are they necessary, and are they kind? Let me tell you, this is harder than it sounds. I fail miserably at times. And yet I'm grateful I still have the wherewithal to engage such a practice. I figure, while I'm still here, I might as well make the most of it. That is, I strive to keep growing, because I want to squeeze so much from this incarnation, until I remember that rest, naps, and non-striving can be revolutionary acts of self-care and healthy resistance. So I put those on my to-do lists too, and everyone's in a while I follow through. Ha 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 ha. I suspect this being and doing dance, being and doing, will be my dance until I lose consciousness, and have to surrender to just being. And at that point I pray only for grace, and good companions in whatever way they can show up. I think that's ultimately all we can ever do anyway, and I like to think that's good enough. If I handed you a microphone and told you that every single woman in the world who is currently facing a major darkness in her life could hear and receive your message, what would you most want her to know? I'd say, whatever impossible thing you're facing, you only need to face it one day, hour, or minute at a time. Ultimately, you don't have to face anything for more than one breath at a time. It's possible to string together a meaningful life this way. And it's safe to allow yourself to feel your grief. Your grief is a measure of how deeply you love. Through it you will find your strength and your reason to continue living. Finally, look for the helpers. You are not alone, and only have to call out for the strength and guidance you most need. It might be found in your beloved pets or oldest friends or next-door neighbors. It might be found in the smell of the sequoias or big mountains or caring ancestors, the great poets or jazz musicians or saints. It might be the higher power of your own understanding. The point is to remember there is sustenance and even joy available to you, always, 
always. The more you avail yourself of it, the more you can bring it to others, and the more you can carve a path of grace in this world. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey, and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.